Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. We are the weekly podcast of Tablet Magazine. I am your host, Sarah Ivry. Today, we look back at Munich, 1972. With the start of the Summer Olympics just days away, the Olympic Committee remains firm in its insistence that there will not be a moment of silence to mark the tragedy that took place 40 years ago at the 1972 Olympic Games in Munich. If you recall, it was there that 11 Israeli athletes and coaches were taken hostage and then murdered by Black September, which was a Palestinian terrorist group. A German police officer and five of the hostage takers also died in the standoff. Here's some archival tape from ABC's news account of that deadly episode. Good afternoon. I'm Jim McKay speaking to you live at this moment from ABC headquarters just outside the Olympic Village in Munich, West Germany. The peace of what has what have been called the Serene Olympics was shattered just before dawn this morning, about five o'clock, when Arab terrorists armed with submachine guns, faces blackened, a couple of them disguised as guards or as uh, trash men in the Olympic Village, climbed the fence, went to the headquarters of the Israeli team, and immediately killed one man, Moshe Weinberg, a coach, two shots in the head, one in the stomach. They've been holding 14 others hostage since then, and the latest report is that one more has been killed. The United States, Germany, and Australia have joined with Israel in calling for a public remembrance at this summer's games, but it's to no avail. The Olympic Committee insists they don't want to quote-unquote politicize the event. Today, we're speaking with David Clay Large. Large is a historian of modern Germany who has a new book out about the 1972 Olympic Games. He's also written about the Berlin Olympics in 1936 and about Munich under the Nazi regime. With his help, we're going to look back at this very dark chapter in Olympic history. David Large, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thank you for having me. Now, David, there have been documentaries, scholarly books, and fictional accounts of what went down at the 1972 Olympic Games. Why did you want to revisit it? Well, I think that um, the existing material out there, whether uh, film or uh, fiction or uh, scholarly accounts, don't really tell the story properly. Uh, For one thing, they didn't have access to a lot of the recently available archival materials. I wanted to look at the the various police reports and internal ministry reports and so forth from from the Germans to get a better sense of exactly why this uh, this operation this rescue operation was so badly botched but I also wanted to tell the larger story of the 72 games which goes beyond the terrorist attack I mean these were interesting games for all sorts of reasons the cold war background which manifested itself actually uh, in the in the athletic play as well the famous much-disputed basketball final between the USA and the USSR comes to mind. These were the games, the games that made Olga Corbett uh, famous, the, the Russian uh, gymnast. So there were lots of issues that were going on that I thought needed attention uh, apart from the terrorist attack, though obviously that re- that remains at, at the center of the whole story. And as, as I said, I, I wanted to try to tell that story more thoroughly, more carefully with some new material. Now, I assume most of our listeners are familiar with what happened in Munich in this massacre, but I'd love it if we can just sort of start off with a quick outline of what actually unfolded. So this all took place about two weeks into the games, is that right, early on the morning? Not that long. About about a week or so into the games is when the attack occurred. It was early in the morning? Yes, very early in the morning, still dark. Uh, A group of uh, terrorists, there were eight of them all told, uh, snuck into the uh, Olympic uh, village uh, at the Olympic com- 
found in Munich. Now, this was relatively easy to do because the, the security is quite lax around around the village, in, in part because the Munich organizers did not want to be too obtrusive with their security. They did not want to look like 1936 all over again, where there had been lots of armed police and SS men and the rest of it. They wanted to portray a new, kinder, gentler Germany. And so they bent over backwards to be amiable, congenial, and, and not to be too overbearing when it came to security. So it was a relatively easy matter for these Palestinians to get into the compound. Once they did that, they were also able to get over to the uh, Israeli complex that was not guarded. Uh, the front door was even unlocked. Uh, there, was no, there were no special provisions um, taken to secure the Israelis, in part because uh, the Israelis themselves didn't want to stand out. They didn't want to look like you know, they needed it. And uh, so th- these eight commandos were able to gain entrance uh, pretty quickly, but they did make noise in the process, which alerted some of the Israelis who were sleeping there. This was, again, the early morning. Some of the uh, Israelis were able to get out. They jumped through windows. They ran into other parts of the Olympic complex. But, uh, you know, 11 of them uh, were, were captured, taken hostage. The, the idea here on the part of the attackers was not simply to kill them or to, to execute some kind of a a terrorist attack like you would associate with al-Qaeda. Rather, what they wanted to do was exchange these Israeli hostages for for Arab prisoners held in Israeli jails. That was the notion. So, of course, immediately after taking these hostages, they, they sent out a, an ultimatum uh, to the Olympic organizers and officials saying that if the Israeli government didn't agree immediately to start releasing Arab prisoners, these hostages would would be killed. And uh, what happened then over the course of the next few hours, uh, almost nine hours really, is that there were negotiations between the hostage takers and the uh, German officials who were clueless. They didn't know what to do, how to handle this. Of course, they immediately asked the Golda Meir government in Israel to accept (laughs) the, um, uh, the ultimatum from the Palestinians. The Israeli government said, no, absolutely not. There would be no negotiating on these matters. So it was left up to the Germans, you know, who tried to do what they could with respect to negotiation. They offered money. They offered to uh, send in some substitutes to stand in for the Israelis. But, of course, this was all useless. I mean, the Palestinians knew what they wanted. It wasn't money. It wasn't some German hostages. That wasn't going to work. So the, mm-hmm. the negotiations proceeded uh, for several hours. Finally, the decision was made by the hostage takers themselves uh, to uh, move this whole mess from the uh, Israeli compound in the village to a little-used NATO uh, air, airfield outside Munich where the commandos, the Palestinians, asked for or demanded a plane that would fly them and their hostages to Cairo where the Palestinians hoped to get a better chance at at getting their desires met. So the Germans agreed to that, but with the understanding, the secret understanding among themselves, that they would never really allow uh, these Palestinians to take these hostages away from West German territory. They would instead try some kind of ambush to rescue uh, the hostages as best they could. But again, this was a seat-of-the-pants operation. There was no planning for it. And I should add that the uh, Germans, and here I'm really talking about the Bavarians because the matter was handled by the Bavarian police, they had no force that had been trained to deal with hostage uh, situations. Uh, They didn't even have any uh, police that were especially trained at at sniper procedures and and the rest of it. So this was a 
again, a, an ad hoc, haphazard uh, plan to try to uh, execute this rescue. And as I think most of uh, most of your audience will know, uh, this went terribly awry. I mean, it's it, it's almost a, it would be comical if it weren't so tragic. The the, mm -hmm. the sheer buffoonery and incompetence uh, on the part of the uh, Bavarian police. You said that during the crisis, the Germans offered uh, to replace the Israelis with substitutes. What does that mean? Yes, I mean, uh, the negotiators offered themselves to stand in for the Israeli hostages. They would, if the Palestinians would release these Israelis, said the Germans, like Hans-Dietrich Genscher, who was the Minister of Interior, he said he would stand in personally as a hostage. The uh, son of the West German Chancellor, Willy Brandt, Peter Brandt, also offered to stand in uh, as, a, as a hostage, uh, hoping that somehow this might induce the Palestinians to release the Israelis. But of course, this was absurd. They needed Israelis so that they could barter uh, with the Israeli government for release of Arab uh, prisoners. Did the games proceed on Sunday, on that day that this happened? They did. And what was the mood at the games? I mean, were people paying attention, or was everyone just riveted by the drama outside the field? Well, yeah, first I should say the games did continue for several hours after the attack had begun. And so there was a kind of surreal uh, situation there at the Olympic compound. On the one hand, you had Israelis, nobody knew exactly how many, being held at gunpoint, in the compound, but within spitting distance practically, you had the games continuing because the organizers and the IOC uh, hoped to negotiate their way through this with minimal um, attention being paid to it. They really tried to act as if nothing serious was happening, of course, which was absurd. Uh, as far as the uh, athletes were concerned, uh, some of them got wind of what was going on, but nobody knew exactly what was happening, and so they just continued their play, uh, of course, there were all kinds of discussions, uh, rumors floating about, but, but nobody knew entirely what was going on, and nobody knew uh, at, at the outset that, uh, that first one and then two of the uh, hostages had been killed by the Palestinians. They tried to overpower uh, their, their uh, captors, and in the process, uh, two were killed. Uh, this, this wasn't clear immediately, and I think it may, have, it may have affected the decision to allow the games to go on had that been known. But so the games continued until it became apparent that these negotiations weren't working, and, and it also was known among the organizers that there had been one killed, one hostage killed. And so the games were then suspended with the idea that uh, there would be a memorial the following day. Uh, so the games were suspended. Uh, there was this memorial ceremony the next morning at which the IOC president, Avery Brundage, famously said the games must go on. And not only that, he equated the attack on the Israelis with uh, an earlier problem with the Olympics when uh, Rhodesia was excluded at the last minute because there was a threat of a, of a boycott by the black African states if Rhodesia was allowed to participate. For Avery Brundage, that was as much an attack on the Olympic spirit as the attack on the Israelis. And so he equated the two as of equal import, which was uh, insensitive, to put it mildly, uh, idiotic, uh, I think, to be more accurate. And with very little time for reflection or to think about what had happened, the games resumed on the uh, the, the next afternoon uh, with really only 24 hours off. It was, it, I think it was a, a travesty, actually. Let me just understand, though. Mm -hmm. Then the Olympic Committee actually held a memorial before the sort of brunt of the massacre no, no. happened? No, the massacre happened in the 
late uh, evening hours. It went on between the 5th and the 6th of September. So the uh, Olympic athletes were transferred by helicopter to this uh, airfield called Furstenfeldbruck in the, in the early evening. And then uh, the, the firefight started uh, later on uh, that night, lasted into the next morning. And the memorial ceremony then encompassed what had happened throughout the crisis from the beginning of the hostage-taking to this botched rescue effort in Furstenfeldbruck, though, of course, the Germans didn't admit that the rescue effort had been botched and people didn't know exactly what had happened. In fact, uh, early on, the uh, Germans reported that all the uh, hostages had been rescued. So the word went out around the world that they were free and there was an enormous sigh of relief. It was only several hours later that the real truth came through, famously uh, announced by Jim McKay that, as he put it, they're all gone. That is, all the hostages, the remaining hostages, there were nine of them left at First and Feldbrook, they had all been killed. And, and the, the memorial ceremony then the next uh, morning did, of course, address uh, uh, those 11 Israelis who had been uh, killed, as well as the one uh, West German policeman who had died in the, in the firefight. You were in Germany that summer of 1972. I was. But you weren't there to go to the games, is that right? That's right. I was there as a PhD student uh, from Berkeley working on my dissertation, which had to do with these sort of right-wing paramilitary organizations established right after the First World War. So I was there working away diligently in the archives. Um, and, you know, I, I had to stay way out in a kind of a hovel of a place out near the airport because prices had had gone up so much for lodging in in Munich at the time so here I was a an impoverished graduate student <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't uh, go to any of the actual olympic events but I did get caught up in all the hoopla uh, surrounding the run up to the games I, w- I witnessed some of the demonstrations for and against uh, there were by the way lots of anti Olympic demonstrations going on it connected to the fact that the Americans were there and the Americans were fighting the Vietnam War, which had just escalated with the invasion of Cambodia. So there were lots of demonstrations in the streets, but at the same time there was this party atmosphere in town. Uh, the Germans, again, bending over backwards to look uh, you know, congenial, amiable, hail fellow well met almost, uh, you know, there were these Olympic flags everywhere, very few national flags because the West Germans were trying to de-emphasize nationalism at these games. And so they made a big point of not having not only West German flags uh, out there, but, but even the flags of other nations. It was primarily these pastel-colored uh, Olympic uh, decorations, uh, lots of parties, of course, lots of music in the streets. It was a, a festive atmosphere, at least for the first few days. And then, of course, uh, this tragedy occurred, which changed everything, at least for a time. I mean, there was a period of real somberness in the city and horror and shock. Uh, but what's, what's also amazing is that even that didn't last for very long. The shock and horror, pretty soon, everybody got back into the spirit of the games, at least in terms of you know, worrying about who was going to win and which, co- which countries would gain the most medals and, and all the rest of it that we usually associate with Olympic competitions. To what extent do you think uh, Germany's participation in current calls for a moment of silence at the London Olympics this summer has to do still with a kind of uh, guilt, I guess, sure. over Nazi persecution? Oh, I think so. And also guilt over what happened in 72. I mean, the Germans felt horrible that these these uh, Jewish Olympians were killed on their soil. This was their worst nightmare. 
Uh, and uh, they knew, too, that uh, at least a lot of them knew that there had been a, a terrible uh, inadequacy, to put it mildly, in the security and in the rescue effort. So, yes, it's not surprising that the Germans would be among those uh, calling for a, a moment of uh, silence to honor uh, those Israelis who were killed in, in 1972. I should add, though, that there was never really a very good chance that that would happen. The IOC has always taken the position that the games are above politics and that any commemoration of that sort would uh, amount to a political intrusion. should add that that's nonsense. The games have always been intensely political. There are hardly any high-level sporting events more political than the Olympics. Uh, so it's hypocrisy, of course, and disingenuous, to put it mildly, but there it is. That's the, always the IOC stance. They're also worried, uh, they don't uh, admit this, but the, they, that is the IOC and the organizers, worry that if they were to uh, have a moment of silence and let the world know that that was going to happen, there might be protests from the Arab states. In 1972, when that, uh, when that commemoration took place, not commemoration, that memorial ceremony, uh, the Arab states uh, did uh, boycott it. Uh, it is right after the uh, killings. So with this in mind, I think the, um, the organizers are very concerned about perhaps alienating uh, Arab states, or states that have grudges against Israel. And so uh, the, the, these, these issues are very much still alive, and, and the IOC does not want to get caught in the middle of it. I myself think they should uh, be honest about it and have this uh, moment of silence, but but they won't. Has the massacre ever been formally commemorated at the Summer Olympics? Uh, there have been informal uh, commemorations. There there was one at Atlanta in uh, 1996 uh, carried out outside the auspices of the IOC. There was another one in Sydney in 2000. But again, no formal, official, IOC-sanctioned and sponsored uh, commemorations involving, let's say, a moment of silence in the opening ceremony or something of that nature. That has always been denied, and it's been denied, denied several times, by the way, not just recently here in, in, in London. It's, it's, been, it's been going on virtually since the um, Munich attack took place. David, do you have any sense of how prominent these events are in the Israeli imagination? Hugely so. Uh, it's hard to imagine uh, a more prominent uh, issue for the Israelis. In the 70s, of course, there were uh, vast, uh, there were demonstrations against what, what had happened in, in Munich. There were lots of um, military and political repercussions immediately. The Israelis actually attacked Palestinian camps in, in, in Lebanon uh, immediately following uh, the Munich uh, debacle. Uh, strained relations with West Germany, especially when the West Germans released the three uh, commandos who had survived the uh, firefight at first in Feldbrook. They, as you may know, were were released after a Lufthansa plane had been commandeered. And uh, as a consequence, relations became uh, quite uh, strained. The Israelis continue to think about this. They they have thought about it for at, at every Olympic meeting since uh, 1972. And one thing they've done is really beefed up the security uh, for their own teams uh, ever since. You've now written two books about the Olympic Games, one about Berlin, 1936, and then this new one about Munich, 72. That's right. And you use them as a way to look at history, culture, international relations, but you also recognize the athletic prowess sure. that is on display, Yes, which is very exciting. 
If we put aside the controversy of this anniversary, what do you think is particularly interesting for this year's upcoming games? Athleticism always is exciting. And, you know, perhaps the only reason one can imagine keeping these games going is that one does see brilliant athletic uh, performances. And that happened in 72. It happened back in 36. It always happens. So one is excited about that. I think uh, upcoming in London, of course, everybody uh, will be excited to see uh, whether Michael Phelps uh, does as well as he did uh, back in uh, in 2008 in, in, in Beijing, even if he doesn't go for uh, eight medals uh, again as he did then. It'll also be very exciting to see how the Chinese do. They did very well, of course, on home territory in 2008. Can they repeat that? Uh, of course, for the for the uh, Brits at home, it'll be a big deal. Can they do better than they have in the past? They uh, were a, a great Olympic power early on in the modern games, along with the U.S. That they were the dominant uh, power. They faded uh, in the interwar period and, and have continued to fade, though they didn't do too badly in China. They're, they'll be interested to see if they can use home field advantage to perform especially well and to redeem Britain as what once was the greatest sports nation in the world. Well, we'll have to watch. It didn't work out at Wimbledon for them this year. Yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) David Clay-Large, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. David Clay-Large is a professor of modern European history at Montana State University. His new book is called Munich 1972. He spoke with us today from his home in San Francisco. As always, we want to know what you thought about our podcast. You can post a comment at tabletmag.com or you can email us directly at podcast at tabletmag.com. We also want to remind you that you can listen to Vox Tablet. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and any other podcast browser. For those of you who prefer to listen to your podcasts on your mobile device, there's an app for that, of course. It's called Stitcher. Subscribe. Go for it. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivry. From all of us at Tablet, we want to say to you, go for the gold, settle for the silver. We hope you'll join us again next week.